Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Okay, so uh, let me... just kind of zoom out for a second. Um, uh, most of us, especially uh, in our current climate, want to do good in the world somehow. And uh, when we think about wanting to affect change, whether it's in uh, politics or in the climate or in our neighborhood, we often get really overwhelmed because we think so abstractly. And um, helping the entire world is just too big. And it'll stop you in your tracks and lead to despair and uh, make you feel uh, impotent and that your actions really don't make much of a difference. Um, you park your hybrid beside your husband's SUV and you feel, oh my God. <laughs> so, it's really good to begin a small. As frustrating as that is if you're an idealist, just start really small. And a really good place to start is in your body. Getting your house in order, as they say. And a lot of the time, though, people translate that as helping themselves only. I'm only going to work on myself. And the problem with only working on yourself is it usually comes at the expense of other people. So one of the practices that I was teaching on the weekend is to make sure that your practice is always 50-50 aware of what's happening in your own experience while noticing what's happening in the relationships around you at the same time. And that way you can make a vow and this is the vow that I recommend everybody takes today which is to do something about your own pain and your own fear so that you can do something about other people's pain and other people's fear and then work on it 
So 50% of your practice energy goes to working and transforming your own pain and your own fear. And 50% of your energy is to helping to transform and settle the pain around you, the fear around you. And sometimes the gesture is so small, like your colleague at work who really suffers from self-criticism and is in fear of being seen by others. And one day you just turn to them and you tell them what a great job they're doing, even though they don't believe you. Like the whirlpool example I gave earlier, because we're making things solid all the time, fear arises because we don't want to lose control. And if we don't learn how to open up to that fear and uncertainty, then fear starts to harden in our bodies and our hearts and turns into aggression violence, racism, sexism, Islamophobia, and so on. All violence is inversely related to fear and our inability to cope with difference. Difference makes us feel uncertain about our identity and makes us scared. And when we're scared, we act out. But if you're a meditator, you can develop the courage to feel a more raw experience of fear in the way the Buddha sat when he was scared, walked when he was scared, laid down when he was scared to feel how it emerged in his body and how it changed. Like you can feel how fear comes in your body and how it changes. Just seeing fear as like a raw dot in space that's in motion. The uh, Buddhist teacher uh, Pema Chodron says in her writings about uh, uncertainty that uh, more people are afraid of uncertainty than physical pain. I think that's true. I think that's true. But a lot of us are more scared of uncertainty than the possibility of feeling physical pain. So think about that just this week or this month, how uncertainty in your day-to-day life can make you behave in very nervous ways. (coughs) Maybe jumping around from one thing to another, not completing an activity, or freezing. Or maybe it's like you're doing something in your life right now, and in your imagination, that's not the way you think you're supposed to be living. So there's always this judging going on that creates anxiety. Okay, maybe that's true. 
can you also put that aside and come here in this moment 50-50? 50% in your own experience, 50% in the relationship to what's happening right now. So here's my suggestion, is to practice unconditional friendship with yourself. Unconditional friendship with fear, which is basically saying, okay, fear, I'm not going to indulge you, um, but I'm not going to abandon myself. Abandoning yourself would look like, um, as soon as you get scared, trying to numb yourself with um, sensual gratification. Your addiction to porn, your addiction to sugar, your addiction to um, gambling, your addiction to uh, alcohol, like whatever your contemporary addiction is. So A, to not abandon yourself when you're scared, and uh, B, to know what it feels like when you start abandoning yourself. So not to be so idealistic, I'm not going to abandon myself, but like as you start to head in that direction, know what it feels like when you start leaving your body. Because the training in mindfulness is about slowing down and like seeing mental states arising and how they're formed and how they change. So catching it as you start to shut down, I would say. In other words, if you want to be friends with yourself, that's a crazy idea, isn't it? Imagine being friends with yourself. We talk so much in spiritual practice about like letting go of the self, but imagine actually like trying to be friends with yourself. The point is, is if you want to be friends with yourself, you can't leave out the parts that are in pain. And the parts that are in pain are the parts that are scared. Or maybe not in pain, but the parts of yourself that are painful to be with. Do you have parts of yourself that are painful to be with? Do you try to numb yourself when you get close to that? Yes, of course. How do you numb yourself? You, tr- you do something to leave your body. So, in the text, the Buddha has a term that he uses called um, asava. And that's translated in this translation as um, a taint. Three taints. Um, It means an inflow, an outflow, but it's also the word in medicine that relates to a canker sore. A canker is an asava. Do you guys have canker sores in Wisconsin? We don't have them in Canada because of healthcare. 
It refers, an asava refers to mental patterns of sensual craving um, that perpetuate um, samsara, that perpetuate habit. Okay? Um, it comes from the root su, the verb su, which means to flow. And interestingly, when you uh, try to learn the etymology, which I have of this word, it seems that translators can't agree whether the a at the beginning of asava means inflow or outflow. (laughs) There's no agreement, which is actually kind of interesting. A canker sore is like that, too. Is it coming from conditions inside the body? Is it coming from condition, like is it an expression of the body? Or is it coming at the body? It's kind of, it's both at the same time. So, um, the way I would translate uh, asava is ripening. It's like a ripening of patterns that ripen into new patterns and leave seeds. When you work out a problem in your life, it's never a one-time move. It's never a one-shot deal. Life keeps returning. That's why if you're an alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous, you always say, I'm an alcoholic. Why do you do that? Because you have to remember that that pattern is always a seed that maybe isn't ripened for you, but the potential's there. If you get canker sores and something's out of balance in your system, then (laughs) then you know you have to watch your diet and you have to watch your stress and you have to watch how you're moving in your environment so that you can downregulate your nervous system. Downregulate your nervous system. <laughs> okay. So, now the Buddha is saying that um, he sees that habits ripen and turn into seeds that may or may not become new habits, right? So you see, at first, it's kind of interesting, right? At first, it's this really big idea that seems like reincarnation. Then it's noticing the whole natural world has these patterns. Then he comes back to himself and how he has these patterns. And then the third watch of the night is um, his awakening. Now, a lot of people have this idea that the Buddha had an awakening. And it just kind of stops there, like the Buddha was enlightened. Okay. I think this is a misguided fantasy <laughs> of what happened to the Buddha. It's not that he was awakened or enlightened. It's that he was awakened to something in particular. He was enlightened about something. 
right? We're not just awakened. We're awakened to something. We're enlightened about something. And here's what he was enlightened about. First, there is suffering. And you can turn towards it. When you turn towards suffering, there is the arising of reactivity. You can turn towards it. When you transform reactivity, you can experience the cessation of reactivity, which then leads to a path forward. That's what he woke up to. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There is suffering. And then this beautiful sentence afterwards, I directly knew it as it actually is. The word is um, parinya. Nya means to know. Par means around. Isn't that an interesting combo? So to know something, embrace it together. Like you embrace something, and as you embrace it, you know it. It's like uh, if you're a couple, you can have a problem together. Has anybody had this experience? You have a problem together. You talk and you talk and you talk and you talk. It's midnight. One o'clock. Two o'clock. And then you come to an agreement. Or you like have an acknowledgement of difference or whatever, but you've talked enough. Things are settled. Everything's okay. Do you go straight to your bed and go to sleep? Oh my God, some of you do. <laughs> you hug. You embrace after, right? No? Oh my God, am I alone here? <laughs> You're all like, yeah, we go to separate rooms. <laughs> okay. So here's the point, is that you, you turn towards suffering and you know it by embracing it. Right? Just like you, you know another person by the movement to embrace, to hold. It's not just a knowing, it's a knowing with an embrace. And I don't know about you, but like that teaching, I think, which is the core of this path, is so hard to remember. That when you're experiencing fear, you can turn towards it. When you're experiencing a part of yourself that's painful to feel, you can know it by embracing it even if you don't understand it. 
And again, I want to compare it to a relationship where you're talking to someone and maybe you don't really understand their point of view and you still have an embrace and you still love them, but you don't completely understand their point of view or why they want to buy that car. <laughs> I don't understand. And I love you. So, second point. There is a mistake in this, which is the origin of suffering. The word here is actually important to know, which is just um, the way the way it should read is this is the arising, rather than this is the origin of suffering. I would say this is the arising. Okay. And the arising refers to the arising of reactivity. If you turn to embrace suffering, it's going to bring up reactivity. Okay? And our practice is to directly know reactivity as it actually is. To see the reactivity and to not identify with it and get caught in it. Like the feeling of it? Uh-huh, just to feel reactivity. I really want to whatever you're thinking. Of. And then to see that that is a way of living that allows you to feel the cessation of reactivity. What a way to live. To acknowledge moments where you can feel what it's like to not be reactive. When I teach this to therapists, I always say, when you're in a session with somebody and you have a patient or a client or whatever, and they're exploring something and their reactivity isn't present. Their usual reactivity is not present. To acknowledge it and say something about it. To, to help their brains by reinforcing when there's an absence or you're turning down the volume of reactivity to name it. Oh, you were just speaking about X. And there wasn't the usual reactivity. Did you notice that? What does that feel like? What's that like to be able to talk about that incident? And there isn't the same um, amping up that uh, usually happens when you talk about it. Do you know? What does that feel like? Notice that. And they might not even know. They might be like, oh, I didn't even notice that. And then they might say, oh, yeah, I do. I actually feel. Like, to not let those shifts go unnoticed. And that's what we're doing in meditation. We're getting to know what it feels like to be calm and letting it sink into the fabric of, of who we are and how we identify. And then lastly, um,
this creates a path forward. It's Four Noble Truths. This is a path forward. And then he sees um, how one can live a holy religious life. And I know people roll their eyes when I say living a religious life because it brings back your birth religion and various memories around your birth religion, some good, some bad. But this practice is a religious practice. It, it, it keeps a religious feeling in the center of your heart. You feel the sacredness of life. You feel a connection to God. You feel a connection to something bigger than yourself just simply by letting your reactivity settle and everyone's going to have a different language around that. And whatever your language is, um, you know that when things are aligned, they're aligned because your reactivity has diminished, not because you got what you wanted. Because it happens all the time where we get what we wanted and things still don't feel aligned. Mostly it's that we bought what we wanted. <laughs> and th- things feel really good when you buy what you want. And then like the next day, and not even <laughs> a week. <laughs> I just had this experience because I, I really want to take baths outside. Okay? So my goal for so long has been to get one of those animal feeding Troughs, you know those stainless steel animal feeding troughs, and and um, to uh, turn it into an outdoor bathtub. Okay, they're kind of expensive. So there is this co-op where I always look because sometimes they have ones that are like dinged because they're aluminum or, or galvanized steel and they dent really easy, and they have them on sale driving with my son and I look past and there's a bunch on sale so we pull over I have a little pickup truck bought it put it in the back of the pickup truck I'm so excited get it home spend the whole afternoon like moving it around the garden deciding where it's going to go and then um, then the next day I couldn't find a drill bit to cut the hole for the um so I improvised a little bit and cut my finger. <laughs> and then my wife didn't like where I was putting it. So then we had to, like, what's it called? Negotiate. Negotiate. <laughs> um, but I had, like, a really fixed image of where it was going to go. Um, she didn't want there. Um, and... Then I couldn't figure out how to get the hose to it properly because I couldn't dig because it's too rocky. So then I don't want to just leave a hose on the grass. It's kind of, it's not that elegant. And I really wanted to dig a pipe, you know. And, and um, so then it's like five days later and the thing's still not hooked up. It's such a hassle, you know. And then finally I had an idea of how to get it ready and it's sitting in an area where we can just take a hot water line from our basement and just hook it up. And then my wife's like, it's got to be warmed up by fire. Like, you can't have an outdoor tub that just runs off a hot water line from the house. Because she's, she's Scandinavian. She's from Finland. 
So she's like, if you're going to have a bath outside, it has to be uh, wood, wood, you know, a wood stove or something lighting it up or whatever. Or we like build a wood fire under it. And I'm like, <laughs> like, I can't even do our laundry. I don't have enough time to like light a fire <laughs> two hours before I want to take a, you know. So she went online and she found this welder in Portland who makes these coils that you attach to an outdoor tub and you build a small log fire around it. And if you don't have time, you just turn the propane on. <laughs> and then it keeps your bath warm. Because she also feels like if we all want to take a bath, if we filled it up from the hot water line from the house, by the time we're all taking a bath, it'll be cold. So now it's like a few weeks. And now I'm on the road and I'm teaching. And I still don't. I've got cuts. I was like really cut my finger. And I still don't have a tub. Yeah. So, it's all to say, even though I know you're all going to give me advice, um, sometimes you buy something that is going to bring you so much joy, and it turns out to be a big hassle. Okay, back to the text. So, here's the ending. The ending is, the Buddha says, or Janusoni says, sorry, the Buddha says to Janusoni, Sorry, it's the other way around. The Buddha says to Janusoni... Well, it's a little bit complicated, actually. (laughs) It's hard to say what happens here. It seems like like Janusoni is saying to Buddha, well, why do you keep meditating? Like, if you're able to embrace suffering and you can turn towards your reactivity, let it go experience what it's like not to be reactive and see that that's a a path into the holy life, that that's a sacred way of living, then why are you still practicing? And the Buddha says, yeah, if you're asking me that, you might think that I'm not free of greed, that I'm not free of lust, that I'm not free of hate and delusion. And Janusoni's like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, why are you still doing this? And then the Buddha has this beautiful line where he says, because it's a pleasant abiding for myself and also I have compassion for future generations. That's it. That's the ending. In other words, why are you practicing? Because um, it's an abiding. The word for abide is a vihara. Vihara, if you go to India, is the word for temple. Um, it actually means a dwelling or a, a, an abiding. So in other words, practice is a dwelling. It's a place to dwell, and it's pleasant. It's pleasant. Remember the 50-50 I was talking about? And I'm practicing simultaneously for the benefit of future generations. I want to help others, so I need to practice. And then at the very end, there's this nice moment where then 
uh, Janusoni says, well, if that's the case, then I want to be remembered as somebody who took refuge in your teaching. Remember at the beginning where he was like, I want to know if people have faith in your teaching? And the Buddha is saying, a lead by example. Then he describes what he does. And then Janusoni is like, okay, I want to I want to follow your example. And uh, I want to do it for life. So sweet. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.